It would seem that after the rebellion of Absalom and Sheba was put down and the tribes of Israel and Judah were reunited, that everything would return to normal. No longer would there be petty squabblings between the tribes. It seemed that perhaps at this time, order was once again restored. Sadly, that was not the case. God was not through with his hand of correction upon the nation. This is the 45th sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel and chapter 21. 2 Samuel and chapter 21. The first 10 verses. The first 10 verses. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, Then there was a famine in the days of David, three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. Wherefore David said unto the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And wherewith shall I make the atonement that ye may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said unto him, We will have no silver nor gold of Saul, nor of his house. Neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. And he said, What ye shall say, that will I do for you? And they answered the king, The man that consumed us, and that devised against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coasts of Israel, let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aha, whom she bare unto Saul, Ammoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the hill before the Lord. And they fell, all seven together, and they were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. And Rizpah, the daughter of Aha, took sackcloth and spread it for her upon the rock, the beginning of the harvest, until water dropped upon them out of heaven, and suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. Paul writing to the church at Galatia, Galatians in chapter 3, one verse only this morning, 3 verse 13, as he says to the church, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but God himself grants to us this word, the declaration of his gospel, whereby we might go forth mightily and to conquer. Sheba is now dead. The rebellion is quenched, 
and all seemed well, at least for a short season. Job acted according to his character, as we know Joab to act only according to his character, and in that character, he assassinated Amasa, which led to a swift victory over the rebellion by Sheba. Now, acting as a symbol of the law of God, remember, Joab is a type of the law, Joab acted swiftly. He exacted swift and brutal justice on those that either rebelled against the authority of God and the king or against those that were incapable of girding up the sword given to them to defend the kingdom like in the situation of Amasa. But now that Sheba's head was separated from his body, symbolizing that he no longer had any power or authority whatsoever, all seemed well. All seemed well in the kingdom. Israel and Judah were now reunited. Joab was now war chief. David had appointed and filled all the necessary offices of his royal cabinet. The kingdom looked secure. The temple priesthood was safe, reestablished with the faithful priests. So at this point, all seemed well. And yet, all was not well. For God was not finished with David's testing. God was going to bring a famine on the land. But this was not just any famine. It was a three-year-long famine, which was catastrophic. Notice verse 1. Then, after all seemed to be well, then there was a famine in the days of David, three years, and then notice, year after year, as if to say, it continued year after year. Think about a famine, year after year after year. This was catastrophic upon the nation. The scripture emphasizes the fact that the famine lasted year after year in order to impress upon the reader the severity of the situation and the misery that Israel now faced. Seeing this providence, David asked God as to the reason behind the famine. And we read that where it says, and David inquired of the Lord. And that was the right thing to do. Because this tells us something about David. And it offers a lesson for all of us. David understood, as rightly as we must also understand, David understood that nothing happens in the natural world without God orchestrating it from the supernatural realm of his throne room. Everything happens according to plan. He knew that if there was a famine... He knew that if there was a famine in the land, it was God's chastising hand that had brought it about. God was orchestrating everything that Israel had to undergo. But this principle holds true for everything. You know, sometimes we detach ourselves from God's orchestration of all things and we look at things through a tunnel as if to say, gee, I wonder why that's happening. Gee, I wonder why this is happening. Oh, that's happening. No, no, it is God's work in the world. As hard as that might be to contemplate, this is how God works in the world. God is behind all the events of creation. He dictates all that is happening in the natural world from His throne room in heaven. The Westminster Confession states it this way, God, the Creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by His most wise and holy providence, according to His infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of His own will to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Nothing happens outside of God's direct intervention and counsel. 
David's inquiry teaches us that whenever there is a situation, especially one which is unfortunate, or one which is challenging, or one which brings misery upon either an individual, a family, a church, or a nation, or the world in fact, God is seeking our attention. God speaks to the world in His general providence and to His people in His special providence. By His general providence, He causes the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. And by His special providence, He provides situations which protects, encourages, comforts, blesses, warns, and corrects His people so they can continue to advance His kingdom. But everything that happens in the world is orchestrated by God. You can't say, well, that just happened by chance. Every part of creation, including men and nations, are created, sustained, and controlled by the providential workings of God. Both God's general, ordinary providence and His special providence should not be viewed as two separate workings of God without connection. They are connected. The fact is that both the ordinary general providence is inseparably connected with the special providence of God and both, and this is important, both are executed through the mediation of Jesus Christ. When God dictates a certain providence, it is through the mediation of Christ. Dr. Robert Raymond, no relation to me, explains this. He says, I would submit that one must never sever any aspect of God's providence away from the in-Christ relationship that exists between God and His creation, since all of God's dealings with His creation are mediated through the Christ. Everything. The way God deals with the world in which He created, mediated through the Christ. Theologian T.H.L. Parker explains further. He says, The creation is a stage on which are enacted God's dealings with mankind. Providence is God's gracious outworking of His purpose in Christ, which issues in His dealings with man. We are saying that from the beginning, God has ordered the course of events toward Jesus Christ in His incarnation. From the biblical point of view of the world, of the world's history, and the personal life stories which possess significance should only be seen in the light of the Incarnation, or, in other words, in the light of Christ. And so, even the disturbing stories that we read about in the Scriptures, the disturbing stories of lust, rape, murder, adultery, all of these fall into the place of the Messiah's genealogy, It's all orchestrated by God. The accounts of warfare, deception, and betrayal also add to the gospel message as it relates to the Christ. The historical rule of Caesar Augustus was also orchestrated for the sake of the unknown babe in the manger. Everything, everything without exception, everything that God orchestrates in history is through the Christ and for the sake and the glory of Christ and the church. Even the hardest things, even the most miserable things, John and Paul and the Hebrew writer all concur with this theology. Notice what John says in John 17, verse 1 and following, as he records for us the words of Jesus Christ. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him 
Christ, power over all flesh, the general providence, that he should give eternal life as to many as thou hast given him. Paul says this to the Colossians. He says in 1.16 and 17, For by him, by Christ, notice that mediation power from God through Christ into the providential orchestration of the world. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And notice this. And by him all things consist. He's upholding all things. Speaking of the Christ, the Hebrew writer says this. In Hebrews 1, verse 3. Who, speaking of Christ, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so every act of providence is executed by Christ for the glory of God and for the benefit of his body, the church. Now while on Mars Hill, Paul educates the Epicurean pagans as to the sovereign providence of God in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 23. Notice verse 23 and following. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, notice he's speaking to the pagans, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Him declare I unto you, God that had made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And notice this, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Notice, in Christ, because of Christ, through the mediation of Christ, we live and we move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Notice the the control, the power, the providential orchestration of all things by God through Christ in behalf of everything that happens in the world. This is astounding. This is incredible. This is mind-boggling, mind-blowing to think of this. Even and especially when we have to think about the tragedies and the horror that we find in the world at large today. What must be understood when contemplating the orchestrating power of God and the orchestrating providential workings of God is that no providential situation is done outside of Christ. In David's situation, God is directing David by a frowning providence of having a famine year after year after year to recognize. He's calling upon David. He's getting his attention to recognize that there's problems in the nation. There's a problem in the land, so I'm bringing a famine so that I get your attention. Something is not right. Something is unrighteous. And we have to recognize it firstly and deal with it and rectify it to make it right. So we have to recognize it firstly, then rectify it and make it right. Now up until this time, the problem was unrecognizable. David didn't know what was going on. He had no no idea what was going on. This situation brought it to the attention of the king. 
And it forced him to inquire as to what the problem was and how it should be remedied. And herein is the lesson. Whenever an unrighteous act goes without facing justice, it must be addressed as soon as it is made known. God demands justice. He demands that justice never be perverted or left without closure. The task of the body of Christ is to address all injustices and if possible, bring restitution to the victim and consequences to the guilty party. The problem is, for the Church of Jesus Christ, for the most part, in Christendom today, they cannot discern between the left hand and the right hand. They don't even know what righteousness is or what evil is. They can't define it. We have churches today in the United States that are funding young people's transgender operations. A church that calls itself a Christian church. They can't even decide whether or not that is evil or this is good. We need to address injustices when they are recognized. To remain silent is to be culpable to the evil. And so the task of the body of Christ is to address all injustices and if possible bring restitution to the victim and consequences to the guilty party. Now knowing that God is speaking to him through the famine, David asks for a reason. And I, I just, you got to love David. He immediately recognizes that something's going on. Okay, a famine, maybe we need to rethink things. But a famine, year after year, and something is deadly wrong. And so he inquires of God. He is examining a natural occurrence while understanding its organic undergirding because he understands it's supernatural. The natural occurrence is undergirded supernaturally. And that is why we must constantly look at our nation's situation or even our personal situation or our family situation and ask the metaphysical question, why is this happening? What is God trying to bring me to understand? Obviously, he's trying to gain our attention somewhere. When we think about the nation going to hell in a handcart and the stewardship in order for the nation not to go to hell in a handcart is given to the church and yet the nation is going to hell. What's the problem? It's the church. Because every natural occurrence is undergirded by a supernatural metaphysical reality. And this is why we must constantly look at every situation and ask the question, why? What is God saying? What is God trying to tell us? And it's never so much as what is going on, but rather why is it going on? What is behind this? And why is it happening? And this is true for situations that are happening in every realm of life. Personally, family-wise, church-wise, nation, community, whatever. Whenever there is a frowning providence in our lives, we have to ask why. What are we to learn? What are we to think? Sometimes it's to reveal a sin. Sometimes it's simply to get our attention to what we must do because we haven't been doing it. Other times it's to increase our faith. Sometimes it's just to increase our faith. Sometimes when we get sick, it's not because we've done anything wrong, we've sinned, but maybe God's saying, you're not trusting me enough. you got to trust me more. It's to mature us. Because at the end of the day, that's what God does. He matures us. He doesn't want children. Children are always tossed and, and thrown by every wind of doctrine. He wants mature Christian folk. He wants, he wants warriors. 
He wants men and women and boys and girls to understand that they are called to a purpose, not just to live their lives and be happy and and then die. So whenever there's a frowning providence, we have to ask why. Frowning providence are not always chastisements. Sometimes they are, but not always. Sometimes they're simply used to redirect our lives. That is why we must be sensitive to what God is telling us by providence and begin to pray like David. Why, Lord? Tell me why. Reveal this to me that I may do thy will. And so we ask, why is God doing what he is doing and what must be our response? So when people ask, why is perversion, debauchery, evil, corruption, violence, and wickedness exploding on in America? Because it's God's heavy hand of chastisement. And you say that today. You tell people that today. You say, oh, you're such a negative person. Oh, no. Oh, America is so godly. God is judging the nation. And until we get that through our heads and get it through the heads of other people, nothing is going to change. We point to the reason behind the physical situation, to the metaphysical reason behind the physical. In other words, we factor in God. Things just don't happen. God is in the mix. We point to the source of all occurrences, both good and bad, for they are all conducted by the Creator in Jesus Christ as His power of mediation. So once David asks for the reason for the famine, isn't this wonderful? God answers him right away. He's not trying to hurt David. He wants David to rectify the situation. Now, it took David a few years, but he's asking. So the lesson here is, if we ask God, won't he tell us? If we sincerely want to know, which requires honesty, an honest look at ourselves in the mirror, Lord, is it I? An honest look in the mirror, because the mirror doesn't lie. Is my life turning into mush? Lord, is it I? Or do I need to learn something else? So David asks, and God answers, because we, we must ask. And if we ask God, He will tell us why things are going horribly wrong. All we need to do is look at Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 to see the answer. Do this and you'll be blessed. Do the other thing and you're going to be cursed. So make a list. Write it down. Where did we go astray? What is God doing in our lives? If we, or for that matter any nation, violates God's covenant model, negative results will follow. It's a simple equation. Obey equals blessings and prosperity. Rebellion, a myriad of misery through a myriad of evil. It's not rocket science. Even for you rocket scientists. Okay, so at this time, one might ask, why did David wait so long to ask God to bless the nation? Remember, year after year after year. Okay, well, maybe it's time. He waited three years. Now, perhaps, and we don't know, of course, what was in his mind, what was he thinking, but perhaps he thought it would simply rectify itself. But after three years, he knew he had to look to the source. And what is interesting is that once David asks God for an explanation of the famine, God answers almost immediately in verse 1b, and the Lord answered, Notice what he says. It is for Saul. Not about you, David. Well, not really, but sort of, indirectly. But let me just tell you what's happening here. It's for Saul and for his bloody house because he slew the Gibeonites. Nothing was ever made right. All those years back there, there was a problem festering 
all those years back there that was not recognized. It didn't just happen. It was all those years when Saul did something evil. God reminds David that the evil that Saul did to the Gibeonites was never properly dealt with. Isn't that fascinating? Why did God wait so long to tell David? Well, maybe he was waiting for David to recognize it himself. Whatever the reason is, God tells him now. And this is the reason behind the famine. David now must inquire of the Gibeonites because they were violated. Justice was perverted. There was never any justice for Saul's destruction over their people. So David now must inquire of the Gibeonites because they're the victims. How do you want to rectify this? What do you want from the house of Saul for restitution? Because they had obviously been wronged. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn unto them. And in other words, they made them their brothers. And Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. So Saul, in his murderous desire, kills some of the Gibeonites. Now God adds into this verse the fact that these people were not originally from the people of Israel, but from the Amorites. And yet the Gibeonites were converted to the religion of Yahweh. They still were the brothers, which made them brethren. What Saul had done was to slaughter his own kinfolk as a result of his tyrannical wrath. Blind to who these people were, he kills his own people. That's another lesson. Tyrants have no problem killing their own people. Just make no mistake about that. Now God is calling upon David to make things right. And so according to the law, David asks, what do the Gibeonites want as a restitution for Saul's murderous act? Since the crime was against them, they were the victims, they had a past sentence, and they were now given the opportunity to carry out the penalty. Ordinarily, ordinarily now, in the case of murder, the penalty was death. We see this from Leviticus 24, 21 and following. He that killeth the man, he shall be put to death you shall have one manner of law as for the stranger, as one for your own country, for I am the Lord your God. The problem here is, you can't kill Saul. Saul's dead. God dealt with him. Saul is still dead. God did deal with him. And yet, he's saying, justice still has not been fulfilled. In the case of manslaughter, the death penalty was not mandatory since the offended party could ask for some sort of ransom, a payment, the restitution of some sort. But in the case of murder, the murder like Saul perpetuated upon the Gibeonites, the scriptures are very clear. The first place where this penalty is set forth in the law of God is Genesis 9, 6, right after the flood of Noah. And we read this in 9, 6 of Genesis, Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man, in other words, they must execute by man shall his blood be shed for the image of God made he him and that's further reiterated in Exodus 20 verse 13 and Leviticus 24 17 thou shalt not kill and then in Leviticus 24 17 and he that kills any man shall surely be put to death speaking of premeditated murder now Saul in his blind wrath willfully and with malice slaughtered the Gibeonites during his tyrannical reign and he himself did not pay for that crime. And, but again, Saul's dead. How are you going to exact justice? What recourse did the tribe of the Gibeonites have against a dead man? Surely his sons, 
nor his grandsons could be guilty of Saul's crime. You can't hold the sons guilty of a man's crime. You can't hold the grandsons guilty of a man's crime. The scripture makes that perfectly clear. But are we missing something in this account? Well, consider these verses first. Exodus 20, verse 4 and following. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Notice, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation unto them that hate me. Wait a minute. We're not to impute the sins of a father to the grandsons or the sons. But over here it says, he will visit, God will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. That's very confusing. But note the context here. Moses is referring to those children that continue in their father's idolatry and his adulterous or idolatrous practices. You see, the iniquity will be visited upon the children if they persist in the father's sins, making them guilty of the same sins that their father was made guilty of. In Exodus 34, Moses repeats this law. Notice, keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children, even the grandchildren, unto the third and fourth generation. The caveat here is, if they continue in the sins of the father. The scripture that is used to claim that the sins of the fathers will not be imputed to the children is often misunderstood, and therefore, I believe, misapplied. God is stating that if the children do not repent of the sins of the father, in other words, if the children do not follow in the ways that are wicked of the father, then they will not be held accountable. But if they continue and do not repent of the sins of their fathers, if they continue to do what their fathers have done, they will be held accountable to the third and the fourth generation. In other words, fathers... If your sons and your daughters follow in your wicked footsteps, they will be held accountable because they will be wicked as well. Note how important your headship is. This is no game. This is not fun and games. This is reality. Your sons must walk righteously and you must be the example. Mothers... If your husbands are wicked or unbelievers, you must take the headship. You must walk rightly and you might be then careful, more careful to show your sons and your daughters what is right and what is wrong. But notice the wording of the law. Leviticus 26, 40 and following. If they, whosoever, shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespasses, which they trespassed against me, and that also they have walked contrary unto me, and that I also have walked contrary unto them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies. Notice this phrase. If then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham, 
will I remember and I will remember the land. So if the children continue to follow wicked ways, they're not guilty because of their father's wicked way. They're guilty because they followed their father's wicked way. That's the situation here with the Gibeonites. The only way that the lawlessness of the father can be removed from the subsequent generation is if that generation is humbled and repents. Note Ezekiel's explanation to this very same question in Ezekiel 18, beginning in verse 14 through verse 20. Now lo, if he begets a son that seeth all his father's sins which he hath done and considereth, and doeth not such like, notice, he's not going to follow those sins, that hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, hath not defiled his neighbor's wife. Notice what he's saying. If those sons that see the father's sins don't do what the father has done, idolatry, defilement, adultery, neither hath oppressed any, hath not withheld the pledge, neither hath spoiled by violence, but hath given his bread to the hungry, and hath covered, notice he's putting off the sins of his father, hath not taken off his hand from the poor, that hath not received usury nor increase, hath executed my judgments, hath walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father, he shall surely live. You see how that works? If you do not remedy that progression of sin, those children will be held for their sin which they learned from their father. But notice Ezekiel continues, he says, As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, spoiled his brother by violence, and did that which is not good among his people, lo, even he shall die in his iniquity. Yet say ye, why doth not the son bear the iniquity of the father? When the son hath done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept all my statutes, and hath done them, he shall surely live. You see, there's redemption. So, for instance, if my father had done wickedness, and wickedly, and I follow in his footsteps and continue to do wickedly, then I will, because I'm continuing his sins, I will be held accountable for the sin of my father that he passed over to me. But if I repent and I put off those sins, God will have mercy upon me. But notice the next line, verse 20. Only the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. And so, if the son repents, or for that matter, in this case, the grandson, he shall live, but if he continues in his father's sinful footsteps, he will bear the iniquity of his father, because he's continuing in the iniquity of his father. Let's consider this in the, in the light of Adam. Think about Adam. Perfect example. When Adam committed iniquity, he spiritually died and became a rebel and a murderer. His entire demeanor was prideful and he became and he became a hater of God in all his laws. In Adam, all died and are held guilty because of his sin because they continue in his sin. They continue in rebellion. However, once there is a divine intervention and the individual that was held accountable for continuing the sin of Adam is reborn, the individual repents, and the righteousness of Christ becomes his righteousness, and he is no longer guilty of Adam's iniquity. This is why in Ezekiel it says, the righteousness of the righteous. In other words, the righteousness of Christ, who is the righteous, shall be upon the one who repents, and the wickedness of the father of the wicked 
Father shall be upon him. This is what God means when he says, the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him. Now this is why it's so critical. Once again, let me repeat this. For fathers to walk rightly before their children. Because if the father has a pattern of sin, and the children follow that pattern, they will be held accountable, not for their father's sin, but rather because they adopted the sin of their father. That's what's happening here in the situation with the Gibeonites. The answer of the Gibeonites is incredibly astute as to the law of God. Not being Israelites by birth, they still were very in tune with what God's law required and how it should be used in this difficult case. And I submit to you, we need to be as skilled as the Gibeonites in the, in the application of the law of God. And we are woefully ignorant. Consider their request. Verse 3 of chapter 21 of Second Samuel. Wherefore David said unto the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How am I going to make it right? And it was up to them, of course. And wherewith shall I make the atonement? that ye may bless the inheritance of the Lord. And he knew there had to be just, there had to be an, atone, an atonement. And the Gibeonites said unto him, We will have no silver nor gold of Saul, nor of his house. Neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. We want any man killed for, as an atonement. And David said, Well, what shall I do for you? And the answer of the king, verse 5, The man that consumed us, Saul, and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coasts of Israel. You see, what Saul was doing was genocide. He wanted all the Gibeonites killed. Let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them upon, of course, near Gibeah, upon a tree. We'll see that in a moment. And we'll hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. Now, notice what they're asking. They did not want any ransom for the evil deed that Saul did. We want no silver nor gold from his house or from his people. Second, they also refused to accept any blood sacrifice in place of the guilty parties. Neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. That is an interesting statement because you have to ask the question now, was it possible for someone else other than those that were guilty to pay the penalty for the sins of Saul's house? Whether or not this could have been done is not the point. The point is that even if someone could atone for the iniquity of Saul in his house, the Gibeonites refused to let that be an option. They wanted no atonement, no salvation. They wanted damnation. This is quite fascinating. Aren't we to love our enemies? Aren't we to bless those who despitefully use it? Well, yeah. But in this case, we have another lesson here, don't we? We have the continuance of wickedness throughout multiple generations. They did not want any atonement for Saul's crimes other than those who were guilty because those who were guilty, his sons and his grandsons, were still following in the steps of Saul. They hadn't repented. The iniquity of their father, the pattern of iniquity of their father, let me put it that way, was still upon them. And so they let David know exactly what the sentence should be. Verse 6. Let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. And the king said, I will give them. Now you think about that. The king says, okay, we'll do it. Wait a minute. David's a godly man. If this was ungodly, why would he do that? If, if this was not going to appease God, why would he do this? Would he do something that was going to further anger God? No, because this does appease the Lord. 
Now these, of course, when we read the word sons in the, the Bible, it sometimes is used for grandsons as well. And we're going to see that in a moment. Okay, because these mostly were the grandsons. They still were following wickedness. They were still wicked people in and of themselves, of their own volition and their own will and their own rebellion. David knew the law. And he knew that this was just. And because he knew that this was just, he immediately agrees with one stipulation. Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, could not be numbered with the sons of Saul. David would be faithful to his oath. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Now, verse 8 identifies those that were to be executed for the sin of Saul. And when I say the sin of Saul, you understand, I mean the pattern of Saul's sins that the children and the grandchildren were continuing to follow. They were still following idolatry, murderous intent, hatred, you name it. And what we find is grandsons are numbered in the number seven total. But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ahai, whom she bare unto Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, not Jonathan's son, this is another Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Edrael, the son of Basili, the Meholathite. So we have these seven. These were the first to be numbered, five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Edrili, the son of Basili. And then there were the five sons of the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, making these five men Saul's grandsons. Altogether, there were seven. Now, if you remember, Michal had no biological children of her own. She was actually raising these children as her own, which were actually, they were actually the sons of Adriel. So he was the son of Barzillai. Adrian was never married to Michal. She was simply raising his sons. We don't know what happened to the wife. We, we just, we just know that these are his sons. Altogether, there are seven. Now we learn from 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 19, that Adriel was married to Mereb, not mentioned here, but late, late, uh, before this, who was one of Saul's daughters, making these five actually grandsons. So we see this in verse 19 of 1 Samuel 18. Now note how God, interestingly, he's, he's skipping the sons and he's going to the grandsons because he's wiping out any and every possibility of a Saul dynasty. Remember what Saul wanted. He wanted a dynasty of the Benjamites. God is like, no, absolutely not. From the beginning, they were murderous. And he's wiping out any hope of generational continuity. That's what God does when sins are not repented of and the sins of the fathers go to the second and the third and the fourth generation. God is wiping out Saul's generational legacy. He is extinguishing all hope for a possible future dynasty of the house of Saul. Again, we have to ask the question, well, what iniquity did these seven grandsons fail to mortify? Why were they, actually, what was the sin for which they were executed? What were they so guilty of that would justify their execution? If they were bearing the iniquity of their grandfather, then they were guilty of all that he was guilty of, especially idolatry and unbelief, even with a murderous heart. So David takes these Gibeonites, 
And he says to them, I will do what you have asked. And he delivers these sons, these grandsons, to the Gibeonites. And what they do is they hang them in a public place as a warning for all to see and fear. And he delivered them into the hand of the Gibeonites, verse 9, and they hanged them in the hill before the Lord, and they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, you ask your question, why is God so particular here? He's giving us dates, giving us times, seasons. He's telling us that on a hill during the barley harvest. Is this important? Everything in the Bible is important. Everything, every word, every jot, every tittle is important. This execution was done at the very precise timing during the year of barley harvest, which was about the time of the Passover. This was the same time as when the Lord was crucified during the Passover. And so there seems to be a connection being made here between the execution of these seven rebellious grandsons and the atoning work of Christ. Now remember, the Gibeonites wanted no atonement for these people. There was no one that could atone for these seven men, which tells us they were doomed. I asked the question, could these represent all those that follow in the evil ways of their father Adam without repenting? And since Passover represents both salvation and damnation, this seems like a valid assumption. And you ask, well, wait a minute, hold it. You mean the Passover represents salvation and damnation? I thought it was just salvation. Well, if you remember at the original entrance of Passover, at the Exodus, there was redemption for the Israelites and damnation for the Egyptians. Liberation for the Hebrews, destruction for the Egyptians. So the Passover had a two-edged sword. When Christ went to the cross, his blood was shed for the elect, the elect, only the elect, a chosen few, a remnant from all of human civilization from the beginning of time to the end of time, whenever that is. All those who were not atoned for at that Passover were doomed. The Passover was a two-edged sword. Those covered by the sacrificial blood were redeemed through one man's sacrifice, but the rest, not having that blood atonement applied to them, were destroyed. And this is why the Gibeonites refused to have any one man offer a sacrifice, offer an atonement for these seven grandsons of Saul. Now there's one other point here that should be made. These seven men were hanged, and they were hanged on a hill. Although the scripture does not say precisely that they were hanged on a tree, where else would they hang them? That's what they did back then. They found a tree and they hanged them. So you must assume, at least infer, that they were hanged on a tree in order to represent the fact that they were cursed of God. For everyone that is hanged upon a tree is cursed of God. Cursed is everyone, as Paul says very clearly, that hangeth upon a tree. But it also says they were hanged on a hill. Now I don't know where that hill was. And I, I'm not able to guess. But if you press me, if you really press me, it might be possible, even plausible, to infer that since they were hanged on a hill, it might even be referring to the hill at Calvary. All of this makes perfect sense. And it bears up with the truth of Scripture when comparing Scripture with Scripture. Naturally, poor Rispa is distraught. 
deeply sorrowful, naturally, of course, a very horrible thing. Horrible, firstly, because all of these grandsons never repented of their sins. They followed in the ways of wickedness. They followed in the ways of Saul. A deeply sorrowful woman. We shall examine her response. David's kindness to the house of Saul and the Philistine uprising next when we return to our series of Second Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.